This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, news coming up this morning. RCMP Commissioner Bob Paulson is set to retire June 30th. In a note to staff, he says that the RCMP has many challenges ahead that include tackling systemic harassment and mental health issues in the workplace. To talk more about all of this, Gary Clement is with us, President and CEO, Clement Advisory Group, 34 years of policing experience and worked in roles such as the National Director for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police's Proceeds of Crime program. Gary Clement is with us now. Hello, Gary. How are you today? Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, This just something that typical that goes on within the rank and file. It's time for someone to step down or uh, is this the stress of the job? I probably a bit of both. I mean, people have to understand that uh, taking on a leadership role in any police service is not for the faint of heart. And in the case of the current commissioner and his senior command, they've had to deal with probably uh, more internal issues than you would normally find, uh, uh, you know, throughout history. I mean, the, it's it's sad commentary that they've taken so long to deal with the harassment issues because, uh, you know, they've been around for a long time. And, uh, you know, individuals or their predecessors didn't deal with them in in a way that could get them off the plate. So that was left on this commissioner's plate, and they're still not resolved. Uh, you know, I think they're a long way into the process of getting it resolved. Um, and the idea of uh, dealing with some of the mental health issues, I mean, a lot of that we have to look at. We've, you know, in the last uh, couple of decades, probably decade and a half, uh, policing has taken on a role that was not traditional, and that's in the peacekeeping roles. And all of that has had uh, taken its toll. Um, so, you know, those are those are new issues. But the, I, you know, I guess I would say that the dilemma for the new command, whoever that will be, is that they've also got to start looking at what their real men's ray is, and that's, you know, dealing with policing issues, dealing with especially in the federal policing domain, they've fallen in in my view, uh, and it's a sad comment here, but they've fallen behind because uh, organized crime and financial crime has become far more complex. And this complexity demands that they build up expertise and have a a real genuine focus. But as we know, the RCMP is being pulled in a a thousand different directions. They've got this, the latest, uh, you know, pull on resources is probably dealing with the refugees coming across from the U.S., uh, they've had to deal with terrorism, and the commissioners come out a number of times stating that their resources uh, in federal policing have been totally tied up on on uh, terrorist-related uh, issues or suspected issues. So all of these things are going to add uh, a lot of pressure on whoever the new commissioner is going to be, and it, it really is going to take somebody that's going to go in there and realize that they've got to make some fundamental changes. Uh, does Paulson's retirement say something about these problems? You know, I just, uh, there's been a number of senior command uh, retirements in, in, in recently, but, you know, you take anybody that's done 39 years of public service. Um, exactly, yeah. It, you know, it, it would be different if we're talking somebody that's got 25 years of service and, and, and he or she has decided to, to leave. But, uh, you know, when you get up around 35, 36 years and have been in that pressure cooker as long as they have, um, it's probably in their best interest. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that 
I guess from having been in a chief's role and having witnessed chiefs across this country, I, I firmly believe that chiefs should be turned over probably about every five years. I think five years is about all that you can really make changes, and then after that it becomes sort of a, uh, a wait-and-see game what's going to happen. So I think it, it, for the benefit of policing and because of all the complexities that now exist in policing, five years is about all a chief is going to build to survive and I think do an effective job. How important is it that in his notice to staff, he talked about tackling systemic harassment and, and even mel- mental health issues? Uh, he says, quote, we uh, must try to resolve these historical yet persistent harassment claims. I mean, that's those are pretty strong statements. Yeah, well, they've, you know, it's they've come on sort of in the public forum more in the last probably five years, but they've existed for a long time. Um you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but it was, you know, I I started with the RCMP before uh, we allowed females into the force. I think, in my view, it was the best thing we ever did. Mm-hmm. But I was probably an exception rather than the rule. And, and uh, you know, as a commander, I can tell you it didn't happen on my watch, but I know others that uh, it, it, it did, and, and they overlooked it or they... Um, that harassment existed, and, and we just did not, and I say we, the senior command, didn't deal with it effectively and efficiently at the time, and we've never, the RCMP would have never been in the situation it is today. So, you know, that's got to be cleaned up in order to move ahead. But, you know, there's the other looming issue. The RCMP uh, rank and file are, are probably have dropped to almost some of the lowest paid policing um, uh, men and women in Canada, and they're still fighting whether they have an, uh, uh, are able to unionize or have an association. Um, so there is a ton of issues that whoever takes this role on is going to have to deal with, whilst at the same time recognizing that they've fallen far behind in their ability to do effective uh, complex financial investigations, and, and that's come out with the loss of the SNC court case where the RCMP was criticized. Um, all of the uh, senator uh, investigations, uh, mm-hmm. uh, as we know what happened there, and, and all of that has to do with was the inv- were they investigated appropriately? I mean, uh, did we put the right resources, and I say we, I, did society have the right resources looking at them? And so I think there is a lot of issues, um, but, you know, for Commissioner Polson, um, I'm sure uh, he's looking forward to being able to put his feet up and not have to deal with this on a, all the issues that are, are befalling him right now. And, uh, you know, I mean, the government uh, is far more involved in placing than it ever used to be. We're seeing that uh, routinely. So all of those pressures land on the commissioner's desk. Uh, you talk, you've mentioned a couple of times that our, the RCMP has fallen behind. I mean, I think most people think of the RCMP as our premier police service, that it would be the opposite, that they would uh, be on the cutting ed- edge of all of this. Uh, how, how does that happen? Is the role of the service changing? Well, a lot of it has to do with uh, resourcing. Um, you know, I mean, complex investigations, when I started, you could do the average fraud investigation. You probably have two investigators doing it. Today, that takes a team of 10 or 12 individuals. And, 
you know, you just don't learn those skill set overnight. You can be a good investigator, but these things are, are complex. The, the rules to, of admissibility of evidence and documentary evidence have become far more complex. And so, it, it, you know, it takes an investigator a, a certain amount of time to do that. The other thing we've got to realize, and we often are immune to it here in the province of Ontario, but recognize that the RCMP is doing municipal and city policing and provincial policing and right across Canada. Um, it's something that I argue today, and it's a, you know I started in, in uniform policing in British Columbia. Um, I wouldn't have had it any other way, but I guess what a, a question that the government uh, has to start asking itself, uh, should the RCMP still be doing something that is really the domain of prevent our provinces yeah. and cities and would we be, be better pleased in the federal domain if they uh, uh, got rid of that responsibility and focused on uh, you know what an FBI or a DEA in the United States or a Homeland Security does but have only that as their primary responsibility uh, it's a question I think is going to come to the fore at one point because it, it, RCMP tries to be all things to all people they have to maintain their contracts because they are that, contracts. And oftentimes uh, the federal side has to suffer for the benefit of the contracts. Uh, how, will things change in the RCMP with fresh eyes uh, at the helm? And what about female leadership within the rank and file? Is that, how, I guess, progressive is that? I think it's been um, fantastic over recent years. Um, I mean, we just had a, a commanding officer, or there was a commanding officer out of British Columbia that just retired, or out of Alberta, pardon me. We, they've just named a, a female commanding officer for the province of British Columbia at the deputy commissioner rank. In fact, I think she's the first, uh, um, she's one of, uh, I believe she's Métis by background. Um, so I think it bodes well. There is some great female leadership coming up in the RCMP. As to where they'll go with the commissioner, I think that's uh, a, a decision of government. We know how uh, this government has looked at um, filling positions uh, in, in other areas, so it could be very interesting in which way they go. What's the, not, sorry, I go ahead. I was going to say, I would not rule out a female commissioner. I was thinking that. That was my next question. What's the morale like amongst the rank and file? Well, I can only speak from those that I've run into. As uh, I'm now in a role of the executive vice president, executive director of the Association of Certified Financial Crime Specialists um, of the United States, and it's an international association. And so, I at conferences and various other sectors, I've run into uh, investigative, detective-like RCMP officers. Um, frustration, I would say, for the most part. I think the morale where it's come in. Um, in a very negative fashion is the fact that the salary has dropped substantially lower than a lot of other police services. Um, I, I noticed the commissioner did come out, and I, they really have an aggressive uh, staffing campaign to um, try and attract yet, uh, new young members. A lot of millennials are an interest in policing, and uh, those that are uh, don't just look at the RCMP. They look at the wage difference, and so they're, they're uh, you know, uh, deciding to go to other services that are paying far more money. And, and uh, so I think those things are, have to be addressed and addressed fairly quickly. 
Gary Clement has been with us, President and CEO of Clement Advisory Group and former National Director for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Proceeds of Crime Program. Gary, thanks for the time and insight. Much uh, insight. Much appreciated. Anytime. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The blog and commentary today, uh, confusing Trump is back, presidential Trump is gone. Uh, Remember when, uh, I guess it was last Tuesday night, he spoke to Congress for the first time, first presidential address to Congress by Trump. And uh, the hair was toned down, the red tie was gone, didn't mention anything about crowd sizes at the inauguration or the size of his victory, didn't slag Hillary, didn't do any of that. And everybody was wondering, is this the new Trump? How long is this going to last? And of course the answer is no and four days. As on Saturday, he uh, tweeted out that... um, He's got news or had heard news or allegations, whatever he wants to call it, that uh, President Barack Obama uh, wiretapped uh, Trump Tower during the uh, presidential election campaign. I can see why all of these people are investigating him just for his tax uh, situation alone. Remember, this is the president where America hasn't, hasn't seen his tax returns. And uh, just simply there, it probably warrants investigation. Uh, That being said, um, just more uh, confusion, just creating more confusion, more uh, chaos. And I'm just wondering why he's doing all of this. What is in it for him to, for example, you know, I mean, before this, it was still beating about the size of the inauguration crowd and how big his election win was. Why why is he tweeting about Barack Obama wiretapping him? What is in this for Trump? What's in this for America? What's the advantage of even going down this road? To talk more about all of this, Dr. Henry Giroux is with us, Professor of English and Cultural Studies and Global TV Network Chair in Communications at McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Henry. How are you today? Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. I can't wait to hear what you thought about the tweets on Saturday. Well, I mean, I think it's another diversion, another attempt to divert attention from news stories he doesn't want the public and media to focus on. Whether we're talking about, as you mentioned, his tax returns or Jeff Sessions' alleged perjury regarding the withholding of information concerning his communication with the Russian officials or Trump's own purported Russian connections. I mean, Trump, is, Trump drives the media. You know, he's a master of performance. And I, and I think that uh, what's so interesting about this is that, you know, you have to begin with the assumption that his entire political career was built on a lie about Barack Obama. Uh, and, and, you know, and it sort of suggests that his, his claims are not connected to reality. I mean, he, there's no evidence for this. He seemed to have gotten the source from Breitbart, which got the source from another right-wing source. Uh, there, there is some commentary about in The Guardian claiming that, that the, uh, the, I'm not sure if the Justice Department or the FBI actually used the, the courts to, they appealed for a, uh, uh, a warrant to look at the relationship between some Russian banks and four members of the Trump administration. The court turned it down, and they had to then reduce it to simply looking at the Russian banks. They were looking at a server in Philadelphia. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that this has anything to do with with uh, with uh, tapping into his phones. And of course, the president has denied this, but 
As you know, Scott, as the President of the United States, Trump can declassify any information he wants and make it public. So you, know, you would think that he would declassify that information immediately so he'd have some evidence to, make the, to uh, go along with the charge. The FBI, James Comey, has denied the charge. So I, I think you've got another sort of delusional uh, act being produced by a president who appears to be somewhat unhinged. So uh, I'll ask you again, Henry, why bother going there? Why draw, because, why draw because, attention to yourself be, like this? Because he, I, I mean, I think you have to understand, Trump is a reality TV star. He's not a man of substance. This is a, a guy who gets his news, his, his, his news about the world from Fox News. This is a guy who has a short attention span. This is a guy who thrives on sensationalism. This is a guy who takes the notion of credibility as a pathology. This is all he has. I mean, he, he basically is not contained. He doesn't have the maturity. He has the petulance of, of a five-year-old. You, you know, he, he, he can't deal with criticism. I mean, he, he constantly wants to be in the limelight. And I, and I think my argument is that he will do anything to maintain that limelight. And at the same time, he uses that, that need for attention as, as not only as a mode of performance, but as a way of driving the press. I mean, he, he, he's a master at distracting the press from in, in, sort of dealing with important, serious issues. Does he realize he's creating chaos? Is that what he's trying to do? No, he's not creating chaos. He's creating publicity. Hmm. That's what he's trying to do. He's certainly he's, creating confusion and suspicion. Oh, no, no. I, what, what I'm suggesting is not that you're wrong. I'm suggesting that in his mind, mm -hmm. the notion of chaos and the terrible consequences that come when you have that much power and you sort of put out these tweets that, you know, remember, these tweets not only divert, they also legitimate. Right. Mm -hmm. They legitimate policies so that when you're calling Mexicans rapists or you're saying that, you know, people from Muslim Muslim countries, as he did in his speech to Congress, that the greatest terrorists come from abroad, which is not true at all. Actually, not true at all. I mean, he made a number of lies in the, in the inaugural in the in the, in the uh, speech to Congress. I mean, he, this is a guy for whom the the relationship between the truth and lies has just simply collapsed. Mm. And, I, and I think that so what he now does is he uses this endless performance to, to draw attention to himself and to divert attention and to legitimate issues uh, that he wants to, to basically pass. So how does the White House handle this? How does the White House react to this particular tweet which accuses Barack Obama of wiretapping him? Will this, he, he, will this, this stick? This, yeah, this is a big problem because, remember, you've got a White House surround... The, the, the two most important people, it seems to me, who are advising him, Bannon and this 31-year-old idiot uh, from some right-wing who's a right-wing extremist in high school. I, I mean... So he's in a bubble. Uh, there are other people in the White House, like, like of course, Spicer, I mean, who, who basically don't know what to do. I mean, all they can do is just apologize in ways that sort of provide spin. But the spin is so blatantly transparent that it's, it increasingly doesn't work. I think many people are getting worried. You know, I mean, you know, this is a guy who has his hand on the nuclear trigger, right? I mean, this is a guy who could launch a military offensive at any time. This is a guy who can do enormous damage, as he's doing with his policies. Everything from rolling back the Clean Air Act and allowing industry to, industries to pollute the waterways to, 
you know, building up, putting, wanting to put fifty-four billion dollars in the in the military, the largest military in the world. Uh, the, the the real issue should be, it seems to me, let's talk about his policies and stop talking about his performances. And when he does make these crazy remarks, just let's be honest about what he's trying to do with them, as opposed to simply saying are they true or false. Will these uh, this latest situation with the tweets on sta- on Saturday will this stick? Where is this going? I mean, has he bit off more than he can chew this time? He could be. I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, Scott, this is a serious claim. When you claim that a former president of the United States did something worse than Nixon, and and you can't let it go, uh, <laughs> I mean, he's going to have to defend this. I mean, it, the FBI is up in arms because it makes it look as if they committed an illegal act. They're claiming it never happened. You know, who knows whether to trust him or not, but at the same time, he's alienating the intelligence agencies. He's embarrassing high-ranking members of his own own apartment, uh, his own administration. His ratings are falling drastically. So the question is, where does this end up? I mean, the other side of this is that there's, you know, there's a long-standing debate here about how the guy is just unhinged and crazy. But the fact of the matter is, you know, Trump is simply symptomatic of others, other, uh, a long-standing problem with, the America, with Americans' politics. Money drives it. It's been taken over by extremists, particularly in the Republican Party. Noam Chomsky says it's the most dangerous administration the United States has ever seen, and I think he's right. Uh, is all of this to distract us from uh, Trump's Russian connections or Russian relations? I think I, I I think he uses his performances, which is what I call them, bad performances, as a way to distract from any issue that he thinks could could hurt his reputation, and certainly that may be one of them. Uh, so will this just disappear with another twenty-four hour news That's cycle? The problem, you know, memory has a, a a real short life in the United States, as you well know. Uh, you know, we're, they're on a twenty-four-seven cycle. And what's news today isn't news tomorrow. The, the, only thing, the only thing about Trump is that, you know, he's so stupid that he keeps pressing. Yeah. And more tweets will come out. You know, I don't know if you know this, Scott. You know that 12 minutes after he did that tweet, he did another tweet in which he attacked Donald Schwarzenegger. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. How do you go from attacking the pres- yeah. former president of the United States to attacking Donald Schwarzenegger? Yeah. I mean, I mean what, what does that suggest about his mind? Is uh, where's Barack Obama on all of this? What is? I mean, obviously he's staying quiet, but what's his feeling? What, what what's his? Well, he's denied. He's denied that this ever happened, and he made it clear that presidents don't have the power to to authorize uh, illegal wiretaps or wiretaps in general on, on U.S. citizens. But Barack Obama, to me, has always been a guy who has believed in what he what, you know in in post-partisan politics, right? And, and at the same time, he was being kicked around so much for eight years that it was only within the last two, the last year that he actually started taking positions that suggested he had a backbone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we're seeing that again. I mean, he should be speaking out. You know, I mean, this guy is rolling back some of some of his better policies. This guy is attacking him personally, and he remains basically mute. Uh, I don't think that helps his position at all. Uh, will he retaliate over what Trump has said? I don't know if he What should, about legally? I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure if he should. I, I don't, yeah, I, that's a good question. I mean, the question is whether or not he can sue him over something like this. This certainly is libel, but I, I'm not sure that Obama would do that. I, I think that Obama wants to stay as far away from this guy as possible and not get involved in a Twitter debate with him.
All right, let's talk about the uh, revised travel ban. Obviously, they bumped this back from, uh, it was supposed to come out last week after the state of, or, right. or the Congress, addressed to Congress. Uh, I guess the feeling was good after that. They wanted to stretch this out. Uh, why the change of heart with Iraq? Iraq's been taken off the ban list. Why drop that from the list? Well, I, I think because there's been a lot of, there's, there's been an enormous pushback on the fact that many people in Iraq who are who are helping U.S. servicemen, translators, and others, all of a sudden now were being denied access to the United States, and that this was as mean-spirited as one could get. Uh, and I and I and I think that had some influence. I I also think that what we have to recognize is that very little has changed here, right? I mean, except that now the the ban in these Muslim, some of these Muslim countries is 120 days as opposed to being permanent. But the fact of the matter is, he's still demonizing entire populations. He's still demonizing entire religions. He's, he's still making claims about terrorism that don't make sense. Claiming that they're the greatest threat when six of those nations actually. Uh, except, excepting, I think, Iran, have never launched any kind of terrorist attack on the United States in any way whatsoever. I mean, the guy, he just invents, he, he's playing to his base, and he plays to his base because he knows he can say anything, and, and it doesn't matter if he's lying or not. So what is the difference between the old travel ban and the new one? Well, I mean, only, obviously, the they've gone from seven to six. Yeah, uh, that's the only difference I see, except for the limited time span. Uh, he's limited the t- he's limited the ban to 120 days. He's also ex- now taken out that part that says that he he'll he'll uh, allow people to come in to protect allow Christians who have been persecuted to come in. That was really stupid, and and so that's gone. He's taken that out. But I, I haven't read I, I've read the New York Times and l- looked for the specifics today. But I they, they're all really not clear yet. Uh, it appears that uh, those that have visas or have green cards, they were all affected by this ban. Now, if you have prior clearance, that, that it doesn't that's apply right. to you that's anymore. Right. People who have prior clearance can now get in. So uh, is he trying to distance himself from this, that being Trump? I mean, obviously the fanfare uh, with how this first ban was signed with everybody standing around him and him signing this big piece of paper and holding it up to everybody, uh, certainly not that sort of hoopla now, obviously pushed back. Uh, apparently Sean Spicer's not even going to speak about this today uh, at the press conference. It caused too much negative publicity for him. I mean, I mean, I think that what he's trying to do now is see if he can get this through the courts and making it clear in some ways that, you know, he's not going to surround his attempt to, to push this through with the kind of stereotyping, demonization of judges and just outright attacks that he did in the first place. I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, his lawyers are looking at this stuff and just praying that they can get this through the courts. I mean, that's the real issue for them right now. They don't want to, they don't, they don't want to re- recuperate or repeat the bad publicity they had. So they're, they're not sure what, what the impact would be on this, and they're just playing it safe. Will there be another court challenge with this one? Absolutely. Do you think? Yeah. So where where will we? I guess we won't know until it ends up before a judge. But what happens if this one is tossed out again? Where does this leave the Trump? What he'll do is he'll he'll blame the judges. He'll claim that the United States is basically under attack. That we're now weaker. He'll use it as a publicity stunt. He'll tweet endlessly at two or three in the morning, and uh, and then they'll try to rewrite it until they finally get it passed. Uh, obviously, when the uh, address to Congress was last week, we saw a completely different Trump. Uh, didn't mention anything about inauguration or sizes or Hillary or, or any of that. 
Uh, and some said he looked quite presidential. As a matter of fact, I remember seeing a poll on CNN that said 78% of Americans uh, had a positive response uh, to the speech. Uh, obviously, uh, with pushing back the travel ban, they tried to keep that momentum going. Uh, has he pretty much uh, blown everything that he gained during that address to Congress? I, I, I must tell you, you know, when I hear that argument, I want to run for the hills. <laughs> I mean, to claim that because he looked presidential, yeah. which again is about his appearance and the way he delivered the speech and not about the substance of the speech, I have seen numerous reports that fact-check that, res- that speech. Some of them claim he lied 13 times. I mean, it's the same old stuff, right? He simply didn't go on the attack. He lowered his voice. But again, the, the issue here is to look at the substance of the speech. You know, what policies was he at? I mean, when he says American companies were taxed at the highest rate in the world, they're actually taxed, uh, according to the OECD, their rank is 31st, one of the lowest rates in the world. When he says most massive attacks by terrorists were made by radicals outside the United States, that's completely untrue. And you can go on and on. When he says we've defended the borders of other countries while leaving our borders wide open, well, in the last 14 years, the United States has illegally invaded two countries, and it's waged military, illegal military operations in Somalia, Syria, Libya, and other nations. So, I mean, you really have to listen to this guy. I mean, doesn't it prove to you, Scott, that when the press simply judges him on the basis of his appearance and not on the basis of substance, that something is really wrong with the mainstream media? I would agree. Uh, surprised at 78% approved of it, though. Well, I think 65% believe in angels. <laughs> Good point. All right, so uh, one more question, uh, Henry. Where do you think this is going? Where do you think this whole uh, thing that started on the weekend with uh, with the wiretapping allegations, where is this going? I, I think it's going to be a major news story for a while. I actually, to go back to the question about we, how memory is short-lived, I mean, he's attacked the former president of the United States. He's attacked the intelligence agencies. Uh, I mean, this is not a lie that is, he's going to get away with so, so easily. And I think that people are going to push on this. And I think the more they push and the more critical they become, Scott, to be honest, I think the more hysterical he'll get. Uh, he's obviously been uh, promoting the fact that he feels uh, lots are out to get him by promoting fake news. Oh, is Jesus. he guilty of spreading fake news on the weekend? I mean, look, fake news for him is just a term that he's invented. Mm-hmm. It's a metaphor for outright lying. And what that basically means is that he's taking the term, inverted it as, a, as an important form of criticism, and used it as a slogan to simply disparage anyone who is critical of what he does. That is as Orwellian as you can get. That is doublespeak at its most visible form. How do you think the rest of the world viewed the tweet on Saturday? I think they view him as unhinged. Doctor, I, I really do. I, I, I'm not just being... Sure, I mean, I, I, I think that people are scared. I mean, I think the Europe, European nations are scared. The guy is he, he's, he's unpredictable. He's uncertain. He does stupid things. He lies. Uh, he, he plays to the lowest common denominator. I mean, he, 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 look, imagine the leader, Scott, of the most powerful nation of the world has now, for all intent and purposes, lost any kind of credibility. How do you deal with somebody like that? Uh, President Pence? What? President oh my Pence? God. That's even worse. <laughs> but can you see it happening? Oh, I'm, it, it can happen. 
you know, there, as you know, there's a there's the 21st Amendment says that the vice president can actually declare the president of the United States incapable of governing by virtue of a mental illness or whatever and become the president of the United States. And uh, Pence is scary. I mean, Pence is a white Christian evangelical nationalist. I mean, you know, this is a guy, do you remember? He tried to pass a law in his state in, in which fetuses would be, they would be the, the law said that fetuses had to be given, uh, uh, buried in a cemetery, hmm. uh, you know, with all the trappings as if they were actual human beings. You know, I, I mean, Pence is, a, is as radical as an extremist as you can imagine. S- Jeremy Scahill did a story on him that is just... It just turns your head. He's 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 allied with the with the, the Betsy DeVos. He's allied with the people who uh, oh I, what was this the agency in Afghanistan that that contractor that was they were eventually charged with killing a number of Iraqis. Uh, the security the private security firm. He's allied with that family. This is a guy who's really wired into into religious extremists and and national security money. Dr. Henry Giroux has been with us, Professor of English and Cultural Studies and Global TV Network Chair in Communications at McMaster University. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you bet, Scott. Thanks for calling. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, an NDP MP is saying that Ontario is paying for another power generator to sit idle. It's just another example of complete mismanagement on the hydrophile, they say. Why is the province leaving some uh, power generators idle while it continues to move on uh, signing more of these deals? To talk more about all of this, Parker Gallant is with us, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. He is with us now. So what are your thoughts on this latest uh, coming out of the NDP? Well, I'm not surprised. Uh, in fact, uh, Glenn Tebow, the Minister of Energy, issued a directive, I think it was late uh, last year, instructing IESO, the Independent Electricity System Operator, to try to get out of some of those uh, old gas contracts that were uh, coming up for uh, their end of life. These are contracts that were signed by both the uh, NDP and Liberal parties when they were in power in Ontario back in the late 80s, early 90s. So the contract is starting to expire. And um, what Mr. Uh, Thibault has asked is if they can get them closed off early, in other words, settled and closed down, um, that's a good thing. So he's given instructions to that effect to IESO. But um, back in 2010, when uh, Brad Duguid was the Minister of Energy, he was telling the opposite. He was telling IESO to go out, or the Ontario Power Authority then before it merged, to go out and try to renew those contracts on different terms. But those contracts are what are known as take or pay, right? So we have to take the power, so it's regarded as baseload power. And um, so I think there's an effort there to maybe keep some of them on, but they'll only produce power whenever we really need it, uh, which will be very infrequent. And obviously, uh, the costs of, of keeping those units going it plays a role in terms of uh, whether or not the private generators want to want to keep them going and what is really being offered by the energy ministry at the time. Um, so there's, there's a lot at play here. And... Uh, 
and yeah, it does seem kind of funny that we're closing down plants when we're still signing contracts to take on new ones. Uh, that that seems to be unclear with the Liberals. They say they've slowed down. They say they're renegotiating. What are they doing? Are they re-signing? Are we still building more capacity when we're shutting plants down? Well, yeah. I mean, I, uh, this is only a suspicion on my part. But, of course, we, we layered on the cap and trade starting as of uh, January the 1st of this year, right? So we're paying taxes, and those taxes for the cap and trade are reputedly to try to get our emissions targets down, to get our emissions lo- lower. How can we get our emissions lower? Well, we can shut down some of these gas plants because they do produce emissions, right? So maybe in March or April, because I think the Iroquois Falls uh, one is only – They've asked them to shut it for four months. They're going to go back and talk to them afterwards uh, in April, I think it is, and, and perhaps restart them. Um, so my suspicion is that maybe we'll see a quarterly report from the Minister of the Environment uh, uh, that will tell us that, oh, we've been really lucky. We've reduced our emissions, so it's really the cap-and-trade tax is really working. That's a suspicion on my part. Wow. But hmm. I think it's worth thinking about uh, so, uh, how, again, did we get in this mess of overproducing uh, when, you know, we were always so concerned about shortages, this, that, and the other? And, and, and again, it just doesn't seem to make sense to keep moving forward with this if we're shutting these things down. True. Um, but, as I said, uh, gas plants produce emissions. So, their objective, I think the objective of the Liberal government is to try to reduce, if you will, any emissions that they can. So even though we've been signing gas plants... and So they build power plants to shut them down? they build new ones, yes. They're building that 900 megawatt one that was supposed to be in Oakville and is now in Bath, Ontario, is being built in Bath, Ontario. But that one's due to fire up very shortly, right? Uh, when it fires up, it's going to be producing emissions. So, Do we need that one? Will we use that power? Yeah, I mean, we may need it when we start refurbishing some of the nuclear units, but right now, I mean, we're running a huge surplus. Uh, you know, we exported uh, 22 terawatts, which is enough to kind of provide uh, power to... Uh, almost half the households in the province. Why not, uh, and and they've been doing this in the past, is they just produce it and then give it to somebody else. Why are they shutting these down as opposed to just giving it to the states or trying to sell it to them? Well, these are, as I said, these are different. These uh, non-utility generator contracts that were signed, you know, anywhere from sort of 15 to 20 years ago were take-or-pay contracts. So the, the... those producers or generators are going to be paid whatever the agreed-to amount was, uh, no matter whether they actually generate power or don't generate power, right? Uh, whereas the newer contracts are paid on a different basis. The newer contracts are paid on the basis that if you put a 100-megawatt power gas power plant up, you get uh, a set amount per month. That's guaranteed. So mm-hmm. it's anywhere from sort of... Eight to fifteen thousand dollars you will get per month per megawatt. So if it's a hundred megawatts, you're going to get eight hundred thousand dollars a month for twelve months of the year, and don't generate any power, right? If you generate power, you get the cost of fuel plus a couple of dollars over and above that. So it becomes relatively cheap power if we actually have a demand for it. Hmm. But 
you know, we're labeled, we're, 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 you know, we have to pay that, that base, base amount to, in order to, for the generator to be able to recover their capital costs and make a profit along the way. So um, those are the new plants we've got contracted for. As I said, the old ones, it's a take your pay. So they, if they operate, you know, 100% of the time, they're going to get paid for every megawatt hour they deliver. If they don't operate, they still get paid for every megawatt hour they may have produced. It's much like we're doing with the, the, a lot of the industrial wind turbines. When those are curtailed or shut down, we still pay them. We pay them like 12 cents a kilowatt hour for not producing power. We do the same thing with uh, power, Ontario Power Generation. We pay them if they're forced to spill uh, water over their dams and not run it through the generators. So we've got a lot of this excess power, if you will, that we don't produce uh, because we can't sell it for, you know, we'd have to literally pay somebody to take it away. So this way, um, they, they pay a lesser amount, if you will. It costs a lesser amount. Uh, where Mr. Shirelli used to call it a profit when we sold to them. Yeah, remember that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, could we see, um, will we get to the point where, uh, well, let me ask it this way. You know, at one point there were brownouts. At one point uh, the infrastructure apparently wasn't very good. Uh, and obviously the liberals have solved all that and, and made sure we've got this great, robust system but obviously, it's producing more than what we need. Uh, you know, fixing the system and, and preventing brownouts is one thing. How did we get to overcapacity? Uh, well, and could they have not seen that coming? They should have easily seen that coming. I mean, they want us to conserve, so they've been spending money. They they've been spending our money getting us to conserve at the same time as they're adding generation and not doing very good planning. As the Auditor General said some time ago, I think it was McCarter when he was the Auditor General, there was never a cost-benefit study done on this stuff. They just went out and charged the fences and said, uh, go out and contract for this much energy, which is what you know the Ontario Power Authority were, uh, were doing. Um, you know, they were just following instructions as good bureaucrats. And you know, nobody was watching to see whether or not we were going to be, you know, have, have, having huge surpluses, which we have. I mean, as, on, on uh, you know, last year, I think our surpluses were, you know, the ones we we actually produced and exported were probably about um, 14 or 15 percent of what we actually generated. And there was another five or six percent probably that were paid for but curtailed or spilled or steamed off in the case of Bruce Nuclear, uh, that, you know, goes into that big pot, that, you know, global adjustment pot. So they should have seen this coming. But So, know. and from what we understand, they're still continuing down this path and choosing rather than set up new guidelines for all this or new rules of engagement, they're just refinancing that. That's yeah. the part I don't get. They're just yeah, they're kicking the can down the down the street, um, you know, by saying, "Oh well, you know, future generations are going to you know benefit from all the expenditures of the current generation," which is a lot of BS as far as I'm concerned. One of the other things that the current uh, 
Auditor General came out with and, and reported was that we're actually having more brownouts, more hydro failures now than we had 10 years ago, despite all that spending, you know, that $50 billion that uh, Kathleen Wynne said we had spent rebuilding the system. A lot of the rebuilding that we did in terms of the transmission system didn't go to replace, you know, old infrastructure. It went to build new infrastructure so that we could hook up these industrial wind turbines and and uh, the solar, you know, panels to the system. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the transmission systems are are basically wasted money, if you will, because they're only, you know, kind of delivering power whenever the wind blows or the sun shines. Uh, opposition parties looking for Ontario's Finance Accountability Office to investigate the hydro rate cut. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's a great idea, and I, I think uh, that she is the right person to do that. Having worked for Manitoba Hydro for 10 years, I think she'd do a great job. Uh, I'm all in favor. What do you think uh, she will find, and is this any different from reports in the past? Will it be handled any differently? Uh, I doubt it. I mean... We have, you know, as you pointed out earlier, we're still signing contracts. Why are we signing new contracts for wind and solar generation? Uh, it's beyond me. I, I mean, you know, when Mr. Thibault, Mr. Thibault came out and announced that he was suspending, you know, the acquisition uh, of 1,000 megawatts, he said we would save $3.8 billion. Right. So if, why not just cancel it? Why just suspend it? And now he's, he's saying we're going to go out and get another 500 megawatts of, of you know, uh, renewable energy. We don't need it, you know. And all it's going to do is, is add future costs that are going to be added to those future costs that have been kicked down the road, right? Uh, it doesn't appear that the public has bought into this. Would you, would, do you think that's an accurate statement after her announcement of the 25% reduction, including the 8% rebate? I think people are seeing it for what it is. It's just a, you know, uh, a, a shell game. She's just moved the P around a little bit. She's you know, reached into the taxpayer's pocket and took the money out and then turned around and said, we're going to you know, put this money back in your, your ratepayer pocket. And that's all, all she's done. I mean, you know, there's no, she hasn't found any new money uh, anywhere. This is money that's just being shuffled, you know, from one one area to the other. How will, and we may have talked about this before, but I'm asking all my guests who are have similar experience to you, how will the opposition react to this? What can they do? And by that I mean uh, this obvious uh, 25% cut has been put in place. They certainly can't go against that and get elected. No, I don't think they, they can. I mean, they can, I mean, there's, you know, from my perspective, there are ways to save money within the system if they would just do those things. As I said, they could cancel those suspended contracts just as a start. Um, and they, there's a whole stack of contracts that haven't sort of broken ground yet. Cancel those as well. I mean, if it costs uh, half a million dollars, you know, in legal fees and studies that they've they've done, then pay them off. But, you know, it's not going to cost very much to get a lot of that uh, excess that's coming down the stream out of the way. And then on top of that, there's the, you know, the the money they spend on conservation, $400 million every year. Get rid of that. Take that out of the system because, you know, they're committed to spending that money in the future. But if they don't spend it, 
we're going to save it. So get rid of some of that stuff, and that would help a little bit in terms of smoothing. So if I was the opposition party, I would do that. But um, I, the, the, the signal from the NDP wasn't that they would cancel any wind and solar contracts because I think the principal author there may have been P- Peter Tabbins, who is a big renewable energy fan. So, and No, they think the whole problem is all about privatization. That They believe that privatization is the, w- the reason we're where we are at, not because of renewables. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, from my perspective, I think sometimes privatization might uh, just... Uh, actually help get our cost in line. I mean, you know, a private company, we've got our gas is all delivered by private companies, right? So if we're heating with gas or, you know, using it for cooking our meals, we've got two very efficient private companies that are out there doing what they should be doing, delivering at a very cheap cost as compared to what we're getting from the electricity sector. So, you know, my view is that yeah, we might, you know, might get better um, response from, from a private uh, energy company such as Hydro One because if you're, then it's going to be shareholder focused. It's going to be looking at their bottom line. So you won't have, you know, um, salaries that are just out of this world paid to, to the workers. And I think that would have a huge effect on, on hydro costs or distribution costs at the very least. So. An NDP MPP is saying that Ontario paying for another power generator, uh, generator to sit idle is just another example of complete mismanagement on the hydro filed. Uh, and of course, talking about this, Parker Gallant, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. Parker, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, thank you very much. Hopefully we can have a good conversation about how our rates have dropped at some point in the future, Scott. Oh, do you think that'll happen? <laughs> I'm not holding my breath, Parker. No, don't. Okay. <laughs> thanks for the time. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.